Welcome to the Live to 110 podcast. My name is Wendy Myers, and this is a video podcast that you can find on my YouTube channel, Wendy Live to 110. And today I'm really, really excited. We have Dr. Renee Norton on the show today, and we're going to be talking about the surprising underlying true causes of bulimia and other disorders as well. She's a, a clinical psychologist and a, who specializes in eating disorders, and her website is eatingdisorderpro.com. And I found her um, because I was doing some research one day on bulimia. Um, and uh, unfortunately, I am sad to admit um, that I have myself struggled with bulimia since I was a teenager. And it's something that I think a lot of young women are, are experiencing and dealing with. And they uh, don't talk about it like myself. Uh, I do talk about it with my friends and whatnot. But I tend to uh, not want to talk about it and not want to deal with it. And uh, since it's not a huge part of my life, um, it's something that would just rear its ugly head in times of stress. I kind of uh, ignored it and uh, brushed it under the rug. Um, but now um, I have uh, decided to seek help. Um, I thought that I would share with you a lot of the really interesting things that I have found and learned um, about myself and about bulimia and some of the surprising underlying causes of it. So, yeah, so let's do the disclaimer. Please keep in mind that this program is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease or health condition and is not a substitute for professional medical advice. The Live to 110 podcast is solely informational in nature, so please consult your healthcare practitioner before engaging in any treatment or diet that we suggest on the show. So I have a couple of announcements. Um, I'm going to be a speaker at Dave Asprey's Bulletproof Conference here in Pasadena near Los Angeles, September 26th to 28th. I'll be talking about detoxing in an infrared sauna. So definitely come down and check that out if you're in the Los Angeles area. And I'm also going to be a speaker at Jennifer Fugo's uh, Women's Gluten-Free Summit. Uh, you can find that at womensglutenfreesummitonline.com. And uh, I'm going to be talking about how to do a food elimination diet. And I'm so excited to be a part of that. Dr. Mark Hyman is going to be a speaker and Jordan Reasoner of SCD Lifestyle. So many amazing people. I'm very honored to be considered in their company. So let's do our interview. Uh, confessional time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dr. Renee Norton uh, became interested in the treatment of eating disorders while still in graduate school. Her primary areas of expertise during her doctoral training were family systems theory and neuropsychology. She began her practice in 1985 after doing her residency in clinical psychology at Good Samaritan Hospital in Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, over the years, her reputation as the go-to therapist for the toughest eating disorder cases has spread to other states and professionals around the country. Presently, she offers the only alternative inpatient treatment in cases where the individual is suffering from severe cases of anorexia, bulimia, or a combination of the two, often referred to as bulimiorexia. So Dr. Norton, thank you so much for coming on the show. You are so welcome. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And also, I want to thank you on behalf of all the people who suffer from bulimia because it's very brave to talk about the disorder. Um, you're right when you say that it was difficult. Uh, it, you're right when you say it's difficult to tell people about. Many people hide this disorder. It, it's not like anorexia where you sort of you're sort of proud of the fact that you are able to um, resist eating uh, and not necessarily proud of having anorexia, but definitely proud of the components of the eating disorder. Um, with bulimia, it's not like that at all. There's a lot of shame associated with it. And, um, and it's a very difficult thing for people to reach out and find help. So when we have a famous person or a person in the know who is willing to say, hey, I, I was, I'm suffering myself and I know I need help and I'm, and I'm going to do whatever it takes to get well. It's inspiring for people. Yeah. And you know, of course I was very loath to uh, tell people or tell, you know, the audience and even my clients uh, whatnot to admit that because, you know, as someone people are looking to, to follow or to lead them um, on how to eat right and live a healthy lifestyle, you know, it's not exactly something that I want to admit that, hey, uh, you know, I have bulimia. Um, but uh, but I, I think that it's important um, to, it uh, to you know, uh, show I'm not perfect. Um, I don't eat perfect all the time. And 
I I decided I don't need to to uh, admit that that persona that I am perfect because uh, yes. everyone has their issues, whatever it may be. Um, exactly. So um, it's one of those things that uh, I'm just trying to help other people. So I thought I could tell my story and do that. Absolutely, and I find that people are helped just knowing that the person that is helping them has been there. I think a lot of times if you haven't been there, if you haven't had an eating disorder um, of your own, I think your perspective is just slightly different than someone who has. Well, it actually can be radically different, even if you have years of experience, um, though I think it can be just different enough that I think it makes a big difference when people um, understand that I was anorexic when I was young. And uh, after I got out of graduate school, I ended up also being bulimic. Um, people tell me over and over again that that was very helpful to them and very meaningful to them. Yeah, yeah. Well, tell us your story. How did you get um, interested in eating disorders and, and become a, a clinical psychologist? Well, as I said, my mother um, was dying when I was 22 of cancer, and I just naturally lost weight because I was worried about her. I was at, away at school. And people kept saying things to me like, wow, you look great. Are you losing weight? And I never considered myself to be overweight before that. Um, and so at that point I connected losing weight and looking great. Uh, that was the first problem. And then later, um, when my mother died, she, she suffered terribly while she was dying and her looks, um, she was just eviscerated with the uh, chemotherapy and her looks changed dramatically. And at that point I began to make the association unconsciously, I believe at the time, uh, that survival meant, um, what that dying meant ugliness and survival meant beauty and also connect the beauty to losing weight. And now I was just off to the races. Right. However, that wasn't the classic uh, beginning for anorexia. Um, I didn't think I was overweight when I became anorexic. I didn't really even know that I wasn't eating. Uh, as I got into graduate school, I was there on an assistantship and I was earning about $125 on the assistantship and my car payment was 75. So I went to work for the Playboy Club as the camera bunny on Saturday nights. And uh, when I weighed in, the bunny mother said, now, you know, you can't gain more than three pounds. And I said, okay. And she said, so you can't go over 105. And I said, you mean 135? And she said, no, I mean 105. And I said, what are you talking about? I, I weigh 130. And she said, no, you weigh 102. So that was a shock. I had no idea. I, I recognized at the time, that's insane. I can't weigh 102, and I began to recover. So I recovered spontaneously, which is very unusual. That almost never happens. Later, after I got my degree, I ended up with bulimia. I, I'm an empath, and I had a patient who was bulimic. She used um, abusing laxatives as a way of purging. Many people don't know that that is a form of bulimia, that abusing laxatives is a form of bulimia. What you get is that relief when you use when you overuse the laxatives that people get when they purge, when they vomit. And um, also people, many people try to use the laxative abuse or the laxatives as a way of managing weight. I don't think I was using it as a way of managing weight, but I definitely was addicted to the feeling of uh, the emptiness. I became addicted to that feeling. That nearly killed me. That was a whole different ball game. That snuck up on me. That nearly killed me. And when I decided, and when I realized that I was dying, literally dying of it, um, I sought help and I became a foodie. I became a health nut. I began to exercise. I just radically, I made significant lifestyle changes um, and literally saved my life and, and have just been getting healthier ever since. About five years ago in my practice, to end my story, I noticed really strange things happening with my patient population. They were coming in with all kinds of complications that I'd never seen before. Hair falling out, teeth falling out, um, obviously um, infertility, um, all kinds of symptoms of autoimmune disorders. I didn't really, I don't think I even knew necessarily that they were autoimmune disorders at the time, but I understand now that they were all autoimmune disorders. Um, really severe anxiety, polyaddicted, uh, I mean, addicted to something besides having the anorexia or the bulimia. And I just remember thinking, what the heck is going on? What is wrong right now? 
I began the research on my current book called Below the Radar, and what I discovered was that in addition to the relatively or the growing eating disorder population, which is still fairly small, only maybe somewhere under 10% of the overall population, we were looking at a widespread disordered eating. So we have eating disorders, small percentage, getting worse, weird complications. But what I really discovered, I thought I was writing a book about eating disorders. I ended up writing a book about disordered eating because what I really discovered was that there was just widespread disordered eating and people just simply didn't realize that they had disordered eating. Um, so that's how I got to the place where I am right now. I, I love what I do, um, but I find that teaching people how to eat clean, which is a significant component um, in my success rates, I mean, it really makes a huge difference, is not an easy sell. We yeah. live in a society where people, you know, we're the instant gratification nation and, um, and people are overworked and overtired and overstressed. However, I will say that a lot of that stress might be driven by the problems with the food supply. It changes, as you know, it changes the neurotransmitter balance and it changes, it damages the endocrine system and it creates a situation where the worse you eat, the more you need to eat and then the worse you eat. Yeah, I love the fact that you use food um, in your recovery program because, oh, yeah. um, you know, like you said, it's not an easy sell when you have a, a large holistic program that works. Like my Mineral Power program, um, it's a, you know, diet, lifestyle, detox, and supplements, and it's there's a lot to it, and it's not an easy sell, but it works. So yes. for me, I have to hawk what works. I have to yes. offer. I know. Isn't that a bitch? You know? I mean, <laughs> it is. Don't you, I mean, don't you wish you could just give in and say, okay, just come. I'll keep my mouth shut when you're eating foods that I know are poisonous to you. Yeah. Um, because, you know, that way I can keep you as a client. But I can't do it. Yeah, I, can't I do cannot it do it. And I tell, I try to warn people now when they start out in therapy with me. I don't want to be too uh, over the top about warning people, but I tried to warn them, this is not for everyone. And I do tell people that this is not for everyone. But if you, if you engage, if you grab a hold, you are going to get better and you are not going to relapse. And there aren't too many, there are no programs that I know of that can say that. And there aren't too many examples of that out there. And the reason there aren't maybe 10 or 15 years ago, um, no, you know what? I've been looking at the I've been looking at the data for 30 years. The data is the same. It, it, I wrote my dissertation on this well 25 years ago. Um, how come the rates for recovery are so abysmal in the anorexic population? They are literally abysmal, and they guess what? They haven't gotten better. In fact, if anything, I think they've gotten worse. So yeah, yeah, I know for myself when I've you know sought treatment prior uh, to meeting you. I have uh, yes. met with a couple different therapists, met probably three different therapists about it, and just talked about it as part of my, you know, overall healing. And, uh, you know, they just really uh, couldn't help me. Um, really, yeah. you know, the talk therapy doesn't work, um, yes. just in and of itself. No, um, it doesn't. It just, I mean, it, it's great to focus on what your life stressors are. You have to. And I do dialectical behavioral therapy to help people regulate their um, level of emotional arousal because that definitely raises your cortisol levels and that definitely does play a role. Um, but you can't just focus on that because what happens then is that people are not going to get better. If, if they feel better about themselves, if they understand the dynamics that may be causing them stress and they resolve them and they're still feeling and they're still, they still have a food addiction. They're still feeling bingy. They still bloat every time they eat. They're not going to get better. Yeah. And they're going to think it's their fault. Can you hear my dog barking? No, it's okay. Don't worry about oh, it. Good. <laughs> it happens. I have, my I have closet. no idea why the dog is barking. <laughs> it's okay. Um, so because I'm in the kitchen. I must be cooking, and therefore he should be down here too. I well, apologize. Why don't we start with something simple? Like, what is bulimia? For okay. anyone listening that yep. doesn't fully understand it. Right. Well, many people. Um, yes. So, what bulimia is is eating more than you think you should. So there is a subjective binge. And, uh, and then there is an actual binge. And most people are really binging, meaning that they're eating huge amounts of food in relatively short periods of time. 
However, there are some people that are not necessarily eating huge amounts of food, but feel as if they are binging because they have defined appropriate eating in a possibly in a very restrictive way. But the real thing that makes it bulimia is the purging. And there are a number of different ways that you can purge. The most common way, of course, is to vomit. Another way of purging is to overexercise. So uh, working out, running, you know, 10, if running for two or three hours every day, that is a form of purging, a definite form of purging. Abusing laxatives would be another form of purging. Um, abusing your insulin is a new, um, diabulimia is a new form of um, uh, bulimia. Not taking it or taking yes, low yes. doses? Not taking it typically or taking very low doses, but yes, not taking it fundamentally. Um, and let's see, what did I work, leave out? Let's see, over-exercising, purging by vomiting, laxatives, um, restricting your insulin. I think that's it. Okay. And so, so I'd see, you know, you, it seems on its face that the goal of bulimia is to lose weight. Um, but what are, what are the true underlying causes of bulimia? You know, it's not well, just, it's not just to lose weight and, and look thin. I mean, there's lots of underlying causes. Yes, there are, as I believe that there are as many, you know what? I have to put him in his <laughs> No problem. I'm going to talk to the audience for a little while myself. Okay, talk. Um, One of the underlying causes of bulimia, uh, definitely for me, is copper toxicity. Um, This is something that uh, uh, definitely has been well established by Dr. Paul Eck um, and Dr. Rick Malter, who I had on the podcast a few weeks ago about the history and future of hair mineral analysis. Um, On my mineral power program, uh, which is a mineral balancing program using hair mineral analysis, um, this for me was a profound way that I used to detox copper out of my body and has really resolved my bulimia to a significant amount. Um, wow. Yeah, it's, a, it's been a pivotal for me. Without any other intervention whatsoever, um, mm-hmm. my bulimia has been, you know, for the most part, 90% nipped in the bud, so to speak, um, because wow. um, it is uh, known among the hair mineral analysis community that copper toxicity is a, under, a huge underlying cause of uh, mental illness, uh, right. eating disorders, anorexia, anxiety, depression, schizophrenia, bipolar. Most bipolar yes. is just pseudo-bipolar. It's just copper toxicity. Yeah. And uh, Dr. Rick Malter, who's a clinical psychologist I had on the podcast a while ago, um, he used it in his practice for 35 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, to cure ADHD and uh, all kinds of other, other mental disorders that are caused by mineral imbalances and uh, metal toxicities like copper. Right. Um, so that and those are getting worse yes. because of the nature of our food. So uh, the connection that I make, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the connection that I make is that in the past our food had far more nutrients than it has right now. Um, it's we are our food is nutrient deficient now. So. Copper toxicity, if I understand, copper toxicity may have something to do with other um, issues. Uh, I think zinc deficiency. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because zinc opposes copper. And also when we have adrenal fatigue, that is indirectly caused by poor nutrient status. um, That also causes the buildup of copper. Absolutely. And I would say I'm I'm guessing that probably 70% of the patients I see have adrenal fatigue. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So or, or possibly more than that. Um, their endocrine systems are a mess yeah. and their, um, their hormones are, it, I mean, it varies from patient to patient. I started to say before my dog was driving me crazy and I'm so sorry. Yeah. I can't bear <laughs> to hear him. It breaks my heart to hear him cry. Uh, that's okay. Um, but, uh, I see I, when you say what causes, um, an eating disorder, and bulimia in particular, I really think it's as varied as the people that you see. I think um, I'm, I believe right now that many people are experiencing uh, eating disorders, and this is the thesis of my book, are experiencing eating disorders because of some sort of deficiency or because of some something toxic in the environment. My book is all about food pollution, and uh, it's below the radar. The name of the book is going to be Below the Radar, How Food Pollution is Driving Eating Disorders, uh, Obesity, Premature Aging, and Killer Diseases in the U.S. So I'm 100% on board with your um, approach that there's something wrong with the way we are eating, and it's driving disordered eating. I think it's driving 
widespread disordered eating in the uh, in the population. But I also think it's making specific eating disorders significantly worse. And we also are seeing um, an increase in the incidence. So we're seeing younger children, older women, um, more men, and um, and we're also seeing much, much worse complications in the ED uh, uh, community. So it doesn't surprise me at all um, that you are finding the the zinc deficiency and the copper toxicity. That makes total sense to me. Yeah, I think people are literally starving. And then they are literally do not have enough nutrients for their bodies and their cells. And they're starving. And we have this plethora of... That's why we're, our culture is obsessed with food. Yes. Um, and people become uh, obsessed with eating and they think it's about willpower. And it's no, right. their body is going to make them eat, drive them to eat until yes. they meet their nutrient requirements. And yes. when they're eating, most people are eating, uh, you know, uh, nutri- nothing, there's nothing in the food that is, right. uh, has any kind of nutrients at all. My computer is going crazy. Free. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. They're, uh, and they're eating food that actually depletes more nutrients, you know, flour and white sugar that deplete magnesium and other minerals. They're starving to death. Yes, I would agree. I absolutely would agree. And it makes perfect sense. Well, and and the other thing, pardon me, that explains that from my point of view is this idea of a leaky gut. Um, The brain literally does think it's not getting the nutrients because even if you put the nutrients in, so let's say I have some patients that are really health nuts, they're foodies, they say, but I supplement. And um, what I would say is, uh, that's awesome. That is really important. That is really good. That's definitely going to help. But if you have a leaky gut and you're still eating foods that are ripping little holes in your gut, you, your, your body still thinks it's not getting the nutrition that it needs. It's still going to send out the signal, find fat and store it. We need fat. We need, you know, and it's going to store it in the wrong places. Yeah. It's a very, very complex problem. And people are completely clueless about what is happening. I mean, how much... Go ahead. Oh, no. Well, I was going to say, what are some of the other underlying causes? I mean, the classic uh, explanation of bulimia was the controlling father or, or uh, what can you kind of put the critical some father? On that? Yeah. Yeah. The overprotective mom and the critical father. Yeah. Actually, that's why I wrote my um, that was what I wrote my dissertation about. I thought that was a gross oversimplification. In fact, it, it was somewhat infuriating. But I will tell you, I see I do see I do see the critical dad and the and the uh, uh, protective mom sometimes. But I also see the critical mom and the protective dad. I mean, you see everything. So I think that was an oversimplification. But the causes are many and varied. Um, I think there's a lot of social pressure that comes to bear on little kids these days. I think when you combine the pressure to be thin with the manner in which food is affecting us, with genetically engineered um, with GMOs in our food, and they use genetically engineered food to fatten cows and pigs. They use MSG to fatten rice to study weight issues. They've been doing that, the MSG part, for years. Now they're using genetically engineered corn and um, uh, grains to fatten cows. Well, guess what? It fattens us too. So there's no question that the food is addicting. It, it's a, it's obesogenic. It's a, addictive. It's carcinogenic. Um, it wreaks havoc in our bodies. Then you combine that with the tremendous need to um, uh, to minimize the amount of time you spend preparing your food. So we are the original instant gratification nation. People that I treat are literally afraid of going to the grocery store and cooking their food. I mean, I have to go with them often to the grocery (laughs) store, dragging them, kicking and screaming. Sometimes I'm taking them in a wheelchair because they're so overweight that they can't navigate a grocery store on their own. They simply can't do it. All of those people are out of wheelchairs now, by the way. Um, I don't mean to laugh, but it's just funny visualizing you having to babysit them to go to the grocery store. Yeah, no, they don't want to do it. They don't No, They don't want to go grocery shopping. They don't think they can. They really don't know how to grocery shop. Many of them They definitely don't want to cook. Um, I mean, grocery shopping is a nightmare, especially when I tell them you have to eat clean. They get to the grocery store and they go, what, you know, what is that? What does that look like? What does that even mean? So I send them with grocery lists and pictures of the food. I, drag them into my kitchen. I take a picture of everything that's in there and uh, send them out with the pictures. 
um, my, my, a friend of mine just said, can you send some pictures to my mom, um, of the wrappers of your food? Because <laughs> yeah. I've sent them to him, you know, so he knows that's my favorite way of communicating. Get this one. Don't get that one. But, um, yeah, so often what has to happen. So that whole idea, people are literally, they have bought into so strongly to the idea that they should we're the only country in the world. We used to be the only country in the world with fast food. We originated fast food. Most people in most places in the world still, people gather their food and cook it. Or at least they go to the marketplace and bring it home and cook it. We really think there's something wrong with us if we have to do that. We we fundamentally believe the rhetoric that we shouldn't have to spend any time in the kitchen. Yeah. That mm-hmm. we should just be able to somehow miraculously eat the food. We gotta well, go back it, to the basics. Back yes. to how we used to do things. Exactly. We have to be willing to grow a little bit of the food or at least go shopping for the food and pick the right food to begin with. And then bring it home. I don't spend long cooking. I'm not, I don't bake at all um, because you have to follow a recipe to bake and I'm horrible at following recipes. But I cook absolutely scrumptious, delicious meals and I cook them in minutes. Okay, I do spend some time grocery shopping. I probably spend... I probably spend three or four hours a week grocery shopping. I try to get it down as, you know, as efficiently as possible. But that, so that's one thing. That's one piece of it. We, we want everything. We want instant gratification. Um, A lot of people will argue that it's too expensive to eat clean. I can prove that it isn't. The research is there to prove that it isn't. Now you can way overspend uh, when you are eating clean. Um, you can do that, but you don't have to. You can eat clean for the same amount of money that you could you would spend if you were eating out all the time. Where you really save are on the doctor bills. Yeah. Um, I happen to be I get the lowest health care rates you can get. My insurance guys are always like, Wow, well, I wish I could get a health care rate like this. I mean, and they, they do all the tests, they're looking for something, they can't find anything. So it's it's awesome to eat clean and experience the benefits on that end, especially the older you get. You probably don't appreciate this yet, but you will. You know, as you begin to age, you'll realize, wow, this could cost a fortune. Yeah. Somebody who is severely obese spends twice the amount of money on health care as someone who is a normal weight. Um, so it's, you know, it's just to our benefit to think of that, to include that in the equation. So what about, pers- what about vegetarian and vegan diets? Um, I wanted uh, to touch on that a little bit because <laughs> you roll your eyes. Like, like I do too. Yeah. Um, but well, for me, I groan every time I get a vegetarian, I usually just say for, to people who are vegan, I'm probably not going to be able to help you because yeah. I don't know what to do for them. Yeah. I mean, if they're vegan, their sources of protein are so limited and they're going to be getting soy somewhere. And soy is like 95% right now genetically engineered in the United States. So um, I, I, I feel that they're just missing so many nutrients when they eat uh, vegan and vegetarian. And it makes it so much harder. It's so nice um, to eat a big juicy steak that is 100% grass fed. I mean, it tastes so good. It, it flattens. It looks. It, smooths out your blood sugar levels. I mean, it just makes your blood sugar. You can just do, you can just test your blood before you have the steak, test your blood after you have the steak, your blood sugar level is going to go down. I mean, it's awesome. And that's what we want. We want our blood sugar levels to stabilize because when your blood sugar levels are going up and down all the time, um, you're storing fat. I mean, your body is looking to store fat. It's, it's really unhealthy. And you need that protein for the building blocks for your neurotransmitters like serotonin and whatnot to stabilize your mood. Hello. You so, so do. And people just don't understand that. They don't make that connection at all. And it, But it's interesting when you see someone who is vegan or vegetarian, you – now, I, I, I don't have statistics to back this up. I'm, I'm saying this, and I, I should really think about this. I am thinking about it as I'm saying it. But it seems to be, in my clinical experience, it seems to be that they're stressed so much more. And I always – I mean, I think I've assumed in the past that maybe the reason they're stressed is because it's hard to be vegan or vegetarian. They say it's not, but I can't help thinking it is. So there are one thing to be aware of if you are a therapist is when you get someone who is anorexic, who is vegan or vegetarian, um, that's not a coincidence. That might have, that may be a moral issue for her now, but it usually starts as a really strategic way of getting people off your back because you don't want to eat 
that's just a whole food category that you don't have to justify not eating. So you have to kind of be mindful of that. I always ask the anorexic individual, is this a moral issue for you? Um, and even if it is, did it start as a way of avoiding fat primarily? And if they say, really, it did start as a way of avoiding fat, but now it is a moral issue for me. Well, you have to respect mm-hmm. that. But it it always it always gives me a groan. Yeah, I find for my clients as well, it, it, it does interfere in treatment because people are not able to heal their adrenals and thyroid as well without yes. the nutrients and the minerals in animal protein. And That's I know for myself, I went vegetarian for about 18 months and then graduated to veganism for about six months. Mm-hmm. And I I was really shocked at, um, I had the worst bout of bulimia that I've ever had in my life, where yeah. I was doing it every single day, which I had never done and have wow. never done since. And it was just, uh, I, I, it's, it's your body I, telling you you needed protein, right? Yeah, and I think it was what it was, is a, a deficiency of serotonin, um, because I'm not eating the animal proteins that form the, the building blocks, uh, the tryptophan, which are the building blocks of serotonin. And right. then when your your body, because your body needs serotonin for many, many things, not just mental health. So your body right. actually requires that. So if you don't have enough, um, your uh, your body will start to crave sugar. Like a lot of yes. vegans have voracious sugar cravings. Yes. Um, not everyone, everyone's different. Uh, but for me, I did voracious sugar cravings. And what that does, you get this rush of insulin and yeah. it clears out all the amino acids and the sugar except for tryptophan so that yeah. it doesn't have any, any uh, competition to cross the blood-brain barrier and you can make serotonin. Um, but when I was doing that sugar binge to get that serotonin fix... I would then um, compulsively binge or uh, com- com- compulsively purge, and um, I was and I was really concerned about my health, and so I went to go seek treatment, and that's when I just happened to be reading uh, Natasha Campbell McBride's book, right. uh, Gut and Psychology Syndrome, yep. which is all eat meat, 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 <laughs> yeah. and uh, and I was reading in one little section it said uh, you know the nutrient deficiencies that are suffered by just vegetarians, forget vegan. Um, oh. And it, that was, I was reading my medical chart. Um, I just had, I had had $4,000 worth of testing done. Like, doc, figure out what's wrong with me. But it was my diet and yep. um, it had caused thyroid issues and adrenal fatigue and all. I was just completely out of whack. Um, but uh, there was major nutrient deficiencies that contributed and exacerbated my bulimia. Wow. Then, so when you changed, did you change your diet, I assume? Like that. I went out and bought a pound of peppered bacon. <laughs> And I, it tasted so good because my body needed it. My yes. body desperately needed it. No doubt. And yeah. I became very, very copper toxic. That's the problem. Vegetarian and vegans become progressively more and more copper toxic. That's why studies show, actually show that uh, vegetarians suffer more mental illness than meat eaters. Um, ah, so there is data for that. Yeah, there is. Uh, Chris Kresser had mentioned a study. Oh, uh, yes. That. Yeah. That's right. He does, doesn't he? Very yeah. Good. And there, it's like the chicken before the egg theory. Um, but, uh, yeah. I, I'm very confident that it's due to the copper toxicity, um, for meeting right. so many copper rich foods and zinc deficient foods. Right. So what do people do when they have a t- copper toxicity? I'm going to refer some patients to you. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> well, they basically, um, number one supplement zinc and eat red meat a couple of times okay. a week. Uh, mm-hmm. that meat is your red meat is the medicine. Um, but it's more complicated than that. There's other imbalances in the body that need to be rectified. And really the best way to do that is a complete mineral power program where mm-hmm. someone does a hair mineral analysis and yeah. then we see what nutrient deficiencies they have, what uh, kind of stress patterns they have in their, you know, that are showing in their hair. And then right. uh, I design a custom supplement program to correct those imbalances. And then That's over awesome. time, people, they detox copper. It takes takes a you know, year, two years. Right. Uh, but it happens and people feel amazing afterwards, like I do. Right. Yes. Yeah, I'm putting someone or going through the detox part of it um, is challenging for most people. Been through it myself. Um, it was so much harder. I, I, I kept thinking, I was always, of course, I encouraged, encouraged my patients to go through it, but I, I waited and waited myself. Who knows why I was waiting? I have no idea what I was waiting for. But when I finally did detox, it was like, whoa, this is really hard. Yeah, it, it can be feel, unpleasant. <laughs> yeah, it was awful. There was, but oh my goodness, the change. I mean, it's amazing yeah. how good you feel afterwards. All the things that changed. It was 
I mean, so many strange things, you know, like growing hair and sweating and body temperature. And um, I mean, just all the things that I thought, oh, this must be happening because I'm old. Yeah. Um, None of it was because of aging. And I think that's really typical of our society right now. We are aging prematurely and we accept it like it's normal. I have people who aren't 40 yet premenopausal. I mean, my grandmother had her last baby when she was 60, you know? (laughs) Yeah, and it's true. I tell people, when I was 40, I thought that I was over the hill because I felt so terrible. Um, But in fatigue, people accept fatigue. It is not normal. Hunter-gatherer societies, uh, the women are, and the men, they're thin, they're healthy, they're fit, they're bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, great memory, all that. It's not normal. Yeah. Um, So let's get back to bulimia. Um, Sure. So what role do toxic relationships uh, play in bulimia and triggering it? Well, again, um, there are so many things that can stress people out. And a toxic relationship is um, probably as common as anything else. I think often when people are stressed in a relationship, they turn to food. And um, that creates usually creates more problems in the relationship because um, – Let's, let's take, for example, that you're in a, you're in a, a bad marriage and you're, start, you're beginning to recognize that you're in a marriage that isn't good and that you at some point probably need to make plans to get out of it. The last thing you want to have happen, right, is that you are overweight. I mean, unfortunately, most people do lose weight when they get divorced, not that they do it in a healthy way. Yeah, the, but, divorce, the divorce diet. It's the best diet there is, the divorce diet. <laughs> Yeah, it's not, though. Um, But what happens is you begin to um, either if you are still in the relationship and you don't know that you're getting a divorce, um, your your level of anxiety. And I think that these are anxiety disorders, by the way, your level of anxiety increases in ways that drives eating. So eating is just the way we soothe ourselves. If we're not problem solving well, if our level of arousal is going up, we have to find something that. If we, if we don't problem solve, then the only other option we have is to numb. Ideally, we would learn how to problem solve. And that's where I find that uh, di- a dialectical behavioral therapy is so helpful. It just works so well. It can be life-changing. To get people but in touch with their feelings? It, it does. It Yes. Uh, yeah, but it isn't so much getting people in touch with their feelings. Because my patients know what they feel. It is managing the level of arousal that the feeling drives. Mm. So how this works is we are hardwired for a fight or flight. Back when we showed up on earth, you know, 10 million years ago, um, we work continuously in situations where that's at ice age. <laughs> yeah. That's my favorite. Ice age water. Love it. Right. And she does a commercial for what I'm talking about. But anyway, <laughs> um, Back when we showed up on Earth 10 million years ago, during the no, before the Ice Age, um, we were we are hardwired to survive, and we were constantly in situations where survival was an issue. You know, so in, in other words, it, if a woolly mammoth was uh, uh, chasing you, you needed to either you know throw your spear at it or run like hell. You needed that fight or flight kind of thing. Well, that's a huge, that's the adrenal rush. That's a huge surge uh, surge of adrenaline, also cortisol, um, that we needed. But these days, we're almost never in situations where we're about to die. In fact, when we are, we usually die. You know, we might be in one or two situations where our life is really threatened and, and typically, you know, actually something bad happens. So we don't really need all of that adrenaline, but we still have it. And, um, unfortunately, um, we don't regulate it very well at all. So when we get stressed, it's as if something was getting ready to chomp down on us. It's as if we were going to die and the body reacts accordingly. And one of the things that the body does when cortisol is released is it says, okay, shut all, um, shut everything down that we don't need. So as far as metabolism is concerned, shut it down, stop metabolizing, slow it down. Well, if you live with stress constantly, if your cortisol levels are constantly being um, triggered, uh, then it impacts, you know, it's exhausting, you have adrenal fatigue, and you gain weight. Um, Back to the toxic relationship. If you are in a toxic relationship, 
and your cortisol levels, you're always on edge. You are always in that state. Physiologically, it's going to drive you to do something to compensate. And so what often happens is, well, the brain is already sending a signal, find fat and store fat. And the other signal is happening that's coming across is don't burn fat. So already you're, it's a double whammy. Um, what the, what the DBT training allows people to do or teaches people to do is that the good news is that this level of arousal is now language driven. It's language mediated. If you use a word that's upsetting in your, even if it's only in your head, um, your level of arousal will go up and your problem solving will go down. It's like road rage the, nobody is problem problem solving well when they are experiencing road rage. There have been instances of women with little children in the car going after a truck driver that pissed her off. Ready, you know, with a baby in the car, right? Baby on board and she's going to get the truck driver. She's lost her mind. That is an example of poor problem solving. Well, that's because her cortisol levels have, you know, have spun out of control and she can't help herself. So the DBT training allows you to mediate that by just using different words. It sounds like it wouldn't work. It sounds ridiculous. It sounds way too simple, but it works. It's life-changing. So if you can take the word that you were using that was driving these really strong negative emotions and turn it into a neutral word, your level of arousal goes right back down. I think there's something to be said also for if you're in a toxic relationship and you're near a toxic person and you're dealing with their toxic energy all the time, Yes. then it's almost like you want to vomit that out. Like your body wants to get rid of it and eject it in some way. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And so, yes, so the binging you do to numb that pain, that anxiety that you have when you're in a toxic relationship, and you're absolutely right, the purging you do to purge the feelings that you have or the reaction that you have to the relationship. Absolutely. It's a great metaphor. Yeah. Yeah. And now what about parasites? Um, I think uh, parasites... Everybody has them. Yeah. I think they're um, an inter... uh, You know, one of the underlying causes of bulimia that is uh, not really looked at or talked about. But I think when people have a lot of parasites or an infestation, which happens to unhealthy bodies, uh, you know, parasites are opportunistic and they prey on a weak host and will proliferate uh, in a weak host. And I think that's also another way where you will instinctively try to purge to get the the parasites out. Yes, absolutely. I would say that about 60 to 70% of my patients have parasites when... uh, the, both bulimic and anorexic, actually, uh, and, and obese. So I'd say 60 to 70% of all my patients across the board have parasites. And the reason I say that is because I try to get all of my patients to do a functional diagnostic nutritional assessment, and it's so common. In fact, it's really it's kind of rare when somebody doesn't have um, some sort of some form of major dysbiosis of the, of the uh, colon. And a parasite is the most common. I can't tell you how many times I've diagnosed H. pylori. And I don't know, most people may not know what H. pylori is, but it's been associated with, and now we know that it's associated with um, ulcers. But what we also know is that if it isn't diagnosed, eventually it leads to stomach cancer. Mm -hmm. And um, most people would never have it diagnosed. Um, they, nobody tests for it really. Um, it may show up, but it, de- it doesn't necessarily show up when you do a fecal sample. You have to do, uh, several days and you have to look at the sample in several different ways. And that's what the functional diagnostic, uh, thing does. But most people would never have the H. pylori diagnosed. And for years they have that H. pylori, which causes gastrointestinal distress and bloating. That makes people want to purge. Yeah, I I, I was diagnosed with that as well. And my father uh, died of esophageal cancer. And um, I believe that that was caused by H. pylori. People, they get it from a close family member, typically. That's right. And uh, It's highly contagious. People don't realize that. It's highly contagious. And, um, And when you have a leaky gut, which so many people do, um, you know, I just blanked on where I was going with that. But when you have a leaky gut, you, oh, well, what happens is with the leaky gut and the H. pylori, a combination of the two is that you're constantly physically uncomfortable in your gut. And so a lot of my patients say, I can't tell you how many times I purged because I just wanted to get away from the discomfort. Uh, of, I felt 
really uh, um, uncomfortable as soon as I ate, let's say they ate a taco. So they ate something with white grain, you know, with white flour in it. Um, I felt horribly uncomfortable as soon as I ate that food. That's because it's partly the H. pylori that, you know, that's one of the symptoms. And it's also a combination of the H. pylori, which also contributes to leaky gut. And the leaky gut the, you know, your, your body is leaking, the immune system attacks it, all of this stuff is going on then right then in the gut. It's really uncomfortable. And of course, it seems logical to purge. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, H. pylori can cause low stomach acid also, you know, which you contributes go. to this whole host chain of events that you talk about. That's what I, I love about you that you use FDN, functional diagnostic nutrition, um, and getting a whole picture of the client. Um, so that you can see what's going on physically as well as mentally, because I think a lot of a lot of uh, therapists and uh, clinical psychologists are just kind of like shooting in the dark. Um, they don't, they don't know, what's know going that on. they are. Yeah, yeah. that's it, what's even worse is. And thank you. You're absolutely right. They have no idea the role that food plays. In fact, I, my approach is viewed it somewhat uh, uh, as quackery because the um, National Eating Disorders Association takes a very strong sign, uh, stand. And the stand that they take is that everyone should learn to eat in moderation, that encouraging, uh, looking at this problem from a food addiction model or looking at the idea of abstinence from any food is going to drive more disordered eating. In other words, where they're coming from is and they're thinking primarily, I think, about the anorexic. But where they're coming from is if you give the anorexic individual uh, an excuse to restrict, which telling people there are foods you just shouldn't eat, you should learn to avoid. If you tell people that, that gives some people the um, the excuse they need to restrict. And, and I understand the logic, but it's absurd. If they're going to eat foods that are toxic to their endocrine systems, that are going to cause... Um, bloating and weird weight gain and metabolic syndrome and all kinds of other problems, surely we have a responsibility to let our patients know that their healing process is going to be compromised, that they may never heal. They may never recover. The recovery rates for anorexia are 30%, and they are a little bit better than that for bulimia. And bulimorexia, the combination of the two, Forget it. Nobody gets bulimorexia uh, done. Nobody gets those people well. This approach works. This approach does it. Because when you heal, when, when what happens when you encourage people and teach people how to eat clean is they can trust food again. Yeah. They get the supplement, they detox, they heal their gut, they get the supplements they need so their brains are working again. We yeah, get them out. That brain fog lifts and then they start, oh, the body dysmorphia will go away. The anxiety. I mean, the anxiety people feel before they go on the bioidentical hormones and the relief from the anxiety that they have after they've been on the bioidentical hormones. I mean, that's assuming they needed them, of course. Now, people get confused about bioidentical hormones and hormone replacement therapy. I'm not talking about hormone replacement therapy. That's dangerous. Like, causes cancer. Don't do it. I'm talking about bioidentical hormones. Um, these are not dangerous. They make a huge difference um, in um, adjusting and normalizing uh, hormones that are being attacked all the time. And it's life-changing. I mean, it's simply life-changing. I, I kept thinking, well, I'm such a good therapist. My patients don't even have, they come with these horrible anxieties, anxiety disorders. And then I get them, you know, and then I get them and I work with them for a year. And then they just don't even have an anxiety disorder anymore. Don't have to take medication or anything. Well, what I realized now is it's because their serotonin levels are so healthy in comparison to how they were before. And unless you go through that yourself, unless you experience the anxiety you have when your serotonin levels are all screwed up versus the anxiety you have when they're restored to normal. It's, it's just amazing. And I know on most programs, eating disorder programs or therapists will use antidepressants uh, and, and other medications. What do you think about that and its effectiveness? I don't like it. Um, for one thing, they, they do a lot of damage. So there are, I mean, I, I'm not against medication, Per se, if somebody really needs to be on medication, I say, of course, you know, she needs to be, if she's suicidal, for example, and she can't manage her um, affairs and or stay alive, then of course, we need to get her on medication. But I say, let's 
let's evaluate where her serotonin levels are. Let's use a natural approach if we possibly can. Let's use a holistic approach. Let's change her food. Let's change everything we can before we conclude that the only thing that's going to work is an antidepressant or an anxiolytic. I love it that you don't, uh, you know, typically use antidepressants and you get to the root cause of what's actually causing the serotonin or neurotransmitter imbalance. Um, because again, I think a lot of practitioners are just shooting in the dark when they just automatically uh, write a script for, uh, you know, if they have depression or anxiety, it's just automatic without right. any kind of investigation whatsoever. Right. For years, the, the, the favorite treatment for anorexia was Zyprexa and, Ibil- and Abilify. Uh, both atypical antipsychotic medications and like really damaging, you know, just really they, um, Zyprexa can cause type two diabetes. I mean, it's just, it's the saddest thing I've ever seen. It would make the patient gain weight. Um, but then as soon as she could, she'd get off of it and lose the weight and more. And it, it was just, yeah, I'm not a fan of antidepressants and anxiolytics. I think they may be necessary for some people, but I think you can heal so much of what's wrong with clean food. Clean food is medicine. Um, we were designed to eat clean, and clean food works brilliantly in our bodies, just brilliantly. It, it really and truly, it's not neutral, it's healing. And so are there, are there any other causes of bulimia that you wanted to discuss that you can think of? Well, not off the top of my head. I mean, my, my main focus, as you know, is uh, the toxic nature of our food. I think um, stress in general. I think, uh, I think it's hard to separate. So I don't look at causality in a linear way. I look at causality as uh, multiply determined, cyclical and multiply determined. And so I think that there are in each person many things that came to bear uh, that resulted in the individual having the eating disorder. And I think it's very, that's why you, you have to use a very um, patient-centered approach. That's why the functional, uh, the functional nutrition and I also like functional fitness. And that's why the holistic approach is so very important. Mm. But again, it's a hard sell. sell. And um, I'm so happy to find people like you um, and other people like me out there who are willing to um, take a position that obviously isn't very popular sometimes. And sometimes it's hard for people to understand because there is there is an element of our society right now that wants this information, that really gets it, that really wants it. It's just that the vast majority of people, it, it, this really is the below the radar for the vast majority of people. Yeah. And yeah. so how does one recover from bulimia? Kind of what it is, uh, do you have any kind of approach yeah, well, my, that you use? My best strategy, I think the thing that I, that has worked the, the, the best, aside from the fact that I teach people to eat clean, which is enormously helpful for them in terms of uh, staying recovered. But the best strategy um, for me is when I tell them, you can binge as much as you want, you're not going to have to worry about gaining weight. Binge away. You just have to promise me that you're binging on clean food. And so, and, and also you get to eat really fatty portions of delicious meat. You get to slather stuff with really delicious oils. You make popcorn, then put butter on it and coconut oil on it. It's delicious. And that sounds good. It's so good. You can make kettle corn in minutes without ruining a pot or a pan to do it. Um, You can make fudge that is so good for you that it could be considered a supplement. Um, You you get to eat all kinds of organic fruits and vegetables. So you can binge to your heart's content. You can eat all day long if you want to. You just have to eat clean. So most most people are like, I could probably do that. You know, so that helps a lot. I don't tell the worst thing you can do is tell somebody who's binging to stop binging. Yeah. Yeah. All right. It's amazing how many therapists say to their patients. Yeah, abstinence. First thing I want you to do is stop binging. And my patients will say to me, because they've been to those therapists, I'm thinking to myself, Oh, okay, right. 
I'll just stop binging. Yeah, you know? yeah, I hadn't thought of that before. I tried that. Yeah, why didn't I think of that? Thank you so much. And then they never go back to that person. But it's amazing how many therapists think they can just tell the patient, okay, don't binge anymore. So you obviously can't tell the patient not to binge anymore. But what you can tell the patient, what you can reassure the patient is that if she eats clean or he eats clean, eating is, the longer you do it, the less you're going to think about food. Um, the, the more you're going to, uh, the more you're going to see food as fuel. So that's one thing. The I other thing that you have is, recipes on your site as well, that you've got oh, a yeah. lot of, you've got tons of recipes and you have videos on there about yeah. cooking videos and you have, a, you've got a podcast, you have lots of support that you yes. provide your clients. I love that. Yeah. Really try to. Yes. Thank you. And then, and then the other thing is, um, you do have to find out what damage you've done. And you do have to correct the damage. So you're going to have to, I, I haven't seen anybody yet without a leaky gut. So you're going to have to identify what's going on in the gut. And that's the functional diagnostic thing, the FDN thing. And then you're going to have to take the steps to correct it. And it takes a while. Like you said earlier, you know, you're going to detox. And uh, it, it, most people want an, an immediate fix. They want instant gratification. They want to go to the doctor and get the pill. So I have to tell them all the time, okay, it's not going to work like that. Yeah. You're going to come to me. I'm going to tell you, well, we're going to try this, and then we might try that. And depending on what, what happens with those two things, then we're going to maybe do this. And they're going, what? No, I just want to know, what do I need to do? Like, what do I need to do, like, right now? And the only thing I can tell them right now is eat as much as you can clean. And that's a tall order. And so I really don't even want people to necessarily – I tell them you can – you can binge as much as you want as long as it's clean. I don't expect people to start eating clean right away because it's too hard. It takes time. It's just too hard. So it's important that they have a sense that they suspend their impatience and that they they have a sense of this is going to work out. I'm going to get well and I'm never going to be sick again. And, um, and that they're willing to put the time in to learn a new and i hate the word lifestyle i always groan when someone says it needs to be a lifestyle change <laughs> so i really hesitate to use that word but they do have to learn new ways of living their lives yeah. and so managing what is some of the damage that it's caused by bulimia because i think that's something when people know kind of what the damage that they're doing it can be a motivating factor to, to stop i think a lot of people they just don't want to know about it they just turn a blind eye to it well, we've been talking about some of it, like the, the whole the leaky gut, the uh, mineral imbalances. They can do esophageal damage when they purge. They can absolutely ruin their teeth. I've had patients who don't have enough bone left in their jaw. Um, those are usually bilimorexic individuals who don't have enough bone left in their jaw for even implants. Um, of course, they are, you know, they're, they're messing with the neurotoxic um, and, and therefore, uh, neurological issues can, can be part of the bulimia. I mean, anything that the endocrine system touches, uh, you, you, you can have, you can be damaging. It's really hard to, um, I mean, there are as many different complications of bulimia, uh, as there are toxins in the environment it just depends on what your favorite toxin is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So do you use detox as part of your program? Oh, definitely. That's part of it's really part of the FDN thing. But I want my I really want my patients to go through the functional diagnostic, uh, and I just I support them through that. I refer to someone else for that, but I support them through that. Yeah. That's really unusual. I did not. I didn't realize that you uh, encourage that. That's oh, yeah. Very unusual for a therapist. It's really important. It's really helpful. I mean, otherwise. I'm treating the psychological parts and I'm really strongly encouraging them to eat differently. And they're not, we don't know enough about what they specifically need to do to get their guts healthy again and to avoid the foods that they are allergic to because they become not necessarily allergic, but they become sensitive, sensitive to so many different foods because they're leaking out of their guts that um, unless you know which foods they're sensitive to and eliminate them, you've got all that inflammation and inflammation is horrible i mean it causes alzheimer's it's it's been implicated in many of the major uh, diseases that we are seeing today major chronic diseases that we're seeing so yeah you definitely i really believe in a holistic approach yeah. well dr renee thank you so much for coming on the show i so appreciate it um you're so welcome thank yeah. you for having me. it was wonderful and thank you for the work you do thank you
Thank you. Yeah, yeah. my only hope is that uh, if just one person is helped by listening to this uh, this podcast. It was worth it. Um, so, and I, I applaud the work that you're doing as well. Just really on the cutting edge frontier of uh, how to, you know, truly tackle the underlying causes of eating disorders to abolish them. So why don't you tell the listeners about where they can find you and consult with yes. you and what you have going on? Yes, you can find me at eatingdisorderpro.com. You can email me, Dr. Norton, D-R-N-O-R-T-O-N, at eatingdisorderpro.com. And I do have a blog talk radio show that airs every Wednesday night. Um, so please, it's, it's also the, it's called the eating disorder pro. So please join us there as well. I have really good handouts on my website, lots of recipes, lots of videos on how to do things. There'll be more in the future. So yeah, please do, uh, and Twitter and Facebook. Um, it's Dr. Renee, um, on Twitter and, uh, it's Dr. Renee on Twitter and Facebook. And you have your book coming out at some point. Yes. The book will be out in the spring of 2015. I'm so pumped oh that's great that's fantastic yeah so i'll come back on your show uh, right before it comes back out yeah i would love that i would love that great well dr ray again thank you so much for being on the show you're so welcome thanks for having me wendy yes and listeners if you want to learn all about detoxification and the modern paleo diet and my program mineral power go check out live to 110.com 